Bidulao. Watch your back, watch your back. A chance is gonna get you what you back, watch your back. A chance is gonna get you what you back, watch your back. Oh, there's a chance Hi, Douglas. Hi, Jules. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Pretty good myself. Thank you. Nice. How was your week? Pretty chill. Pretty chill. Yeah, mine too. A couple of my lessons canceled, so I had extra free time. That was nice. Lovely. Mm. That's always nice. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) It is good. If you get paid. If you get paid. Nah, I don't get paid. Ah, damn it. Sad, 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 sad. Yeah. Well, yeah, my week has been pretty chill, too. It's not yeah. much to report. The weather's chilling. Yes. It's getting chilly. It's October. We're not drinking very interesting drinks today, are no, we? No, we're not. Mm. I don't even think we should mention them. I'm not, having a gin tonic. Not my crappy beer, but the gin tonic's lovely. You you gave me the gin from somewhere exotic. I forget where. Uh, it was from England. Oh, England. Adnum, Adnum's. Anyway, yeah, I brought that for you for a gift from a trip I took to visit my sister. Some very nice quince gin. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Hi, mom, sister, by the way. <laughs> my mom tried it. It was very nice. She loved it. So, welcome to our podcast. Yes, we cover crimes in the Basque lands, which means here in the Basque country or around the world. Everywhere in the world. Where there might be Basque people. Yeah. Either committing crimes or being victims of crimes. Exactly. <laughs> and any yeah, exactly. Anywhere they went. Like 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 that funny little line says, "Have you seen the world map of Bilbao?" Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bilbao is just a little part of the whole Basque world. Yes. <laughs> Uh, all right, well, this week's episode, if we shall get into it, shall we? Let's. <clears throat> this week's episode is a part two, so if you haven't listened to part one, you could go back and listen to that. So, just a little disclaimer before we begin, this story involves sexual assault and child sexual abuse, and of course, murder, so listen with discretion. Yes. This uh, story also, you know, has a lot to do with the Catholic Church. And I don't know if, uh, Douglas, do you want to tell us anything about the Catholic Church's presence here in the Basque country? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is it is always very complicated when we think about it specifically. But in general, you know, it's a southern European country. And uh, like most southern European countries, Catholic Church is the most powerful Reign church. supreme, yeah. And has been... Uh, that for for centuries mm-hmm. um you know there has not been a lot of like protestant protestant uh, movements in uh, the basque country like perhaps you we have seen in france or mm-hmm. other areas like that but um there's also a bit of a lot of ambiguity when we start to look a bit closer at the basque country because the fact that the the mountains protected the language also protected the basque people over history from a lot of those kind of outside influences mm-hmm. like we might not have paid so much attention when we were talking about it about the witches episode for example yeah but that was a, a very interesting kind of side story towards the story of the the catholic uh, religion here in the basque country where you know people were accusing the women of being witches in a way because they weren't sure how Christian they were, right? Right. In the sense that also there were 
uh, leftover um, pagan um, beliefs in the mountains, let's say, you mm -hmm. know, because they were harder to reach. Yeah, it's hard to say how, you know, how in, in embedded it was until, let's say, the, the 18th century. Hmm. Even in the 18th century, as we already talked as well in that episode, there was happening this... Inquisition. The, thank you. Inquisition, exactly. <laughs> when we read about it, there's like a whole lot of reasons why you could have an in, the Inquisition, right? Uh -huh. One of the reasons is, of course, to strengthen the Catholic Church, mm -hmm. uh, kind of its power over people. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to take that apart, for example, when we're talking about a kingdom that's formed of different kingdoms. Mm -hmm. and where they're trying to impose their power on those other kingdoms just mm -hmm. after having conquered them, if we think about like 13th or, well, 14th or 15th centuries, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of layers, and, and as you can see, the Basque Country is kind of central in it. Over the centuries, of course, after Inquisition, because it was so strong here, and it lasted for so, so long, I think it, mm -hmm. it finished... I think in 1820s, I think, is when they officially finish it. Ended the mm -hmm. position. Okay. You know, so after this process, everybody wants to be as Christian as possible. Yeah. Right? That's number one priority. Let's not get killed by some crazy people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hold on to our property and our... Yeah. 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 And so, again, the Basque Country, you know, it, it over the centuries, like today, we hear like... It was the purest of the purest of Christians. Right. Well, what was that? That was clearly a reaction to that initial kind of accusation that we weren't Christian enough, that we were practicing uh, religion, paganism in the mountains and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a direct kind of response to that. Yeah. Over the centuries, what's also very complicated when we think about the Basque Country is we have kind of the pol that political power. And so when... Uh, the king tries to take away power from the Basque Country um, and a, a number of times the Basque Country used the church to protect them themselves okay. saying no we're good Christians yeah we you, we shouldn't be treated you know unfairly so you see there's lots of issues already right mm -hmm. so clearly yes like everything it's very very complicated it's Convoluted. Very complicated <laughs> yeah but um, it's it has been a very very big force in, 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 in the Basque Country and you know maybe to wrap up this section in a slightly positive note we have to remember that it ended up being quite important during the dictatorship in terms of the survival of Basque language yeah so they were <clears throat> able to preach in, in Basque at church and people at least were able to sing always in Basque in mm -hmm. church and that was as long as it had to do with church right yeah 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 so and you know you know, yeah, it wasn't all bad, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And the reason I asked Douglas to go into that is because, you know, this story, if you haven't listened to part one, the Catholic Church is very large in this story and... One of the protagonists. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Well, we're going to conclude the story today of the death of Irene Garza. When we left off, Irene... Garza mm -hmm. had gone missing after attending confession on April 16th, 1960, the Saturday before Easter Sunday at the Sacred Heart Church in McAllen, Texas. Her body was discovered floating in an irrigation canal in the outskirts of town six days later. Yeah, terrible. 
It was clearly a murder, and it appeared as though she'd also been sexually assaulted. But now I'm going to take a little turn. So now let's go to Edinburgh, Texas. Okay. A small town 12 miles from McAllen at another Catholic church, also called Sacred Heart. Oh my gosh, I'm holding on to my chapel already. <laughs> okay, so it's March 23rd, 1960, three weeks before Irene was killed, and a 20-year-old college student by the name of Maria America Guerra. Wow, that's a cool name. Right? She went into uh, the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for those Anglophones listening, Guerra means uh, war. War, so, right? Yeah. It's a, America it's a, Guerra, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a surname Maria America in, Guerra. in Portuguese as well, but mm-hmm. but like the whole name is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. All right, so she went into the church. Um, she must have been there for some quiet time, or she just wanted to pray because it was virtually empty when she knelt down in one of the pews near the front of the church. I say virtually empty because she did notice a young man with dark hair and horn-rimmed glasses sitting alone in one of the back pews. What was it, the 40s or 50s again? I forget. 1960. 60. That's very 60s. Yeah, the horn-rimmed glasses. Yeah. Yeah. She thought this was the same man she had seen earlier that afternoon. She'd caught him watching her in the parking lot from his blue and white sedan. Dodgy. Mm-hmm. She dismissed any creepy vibes she was getting because she assured herself she was in the house of God. Right? Sorry, I'm still shocked by the blue and white sedan. It's like, again, <laughs> 60s, no? Yeah. Hilarious. So Maria went up to the altar, knelt at the communion rail, and began to pray the rosary. Seconds into her rosary, she felt someone grab her from behind who was trying to put a damp rag over her oh mouth. Oh my gosh, yuck. She screamed and fell backward And as she struggled with her attacker, she realized it was the man from the back of the church. He tried to muffle her screams by putting his hands over her mouth, but she fought him and bit down on his fingers, drawing blood. Angered, he threw her into a wall, and she took this opportunity to escape. So she ran out of a side door, crying and screaming for help. Poor thing. She went to the police to report this attack. And what she felt was an attempt at a sexual assault. Mm-hmm. While being interviewed for her sworn statement to investigators, Maria felt ashamed to admit to them that she thought her attacker might have been a priest. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was wearing the black pants that priests wore, mm. and it was just her general impression of him. Mm. Mm-hmm. Maria's case stalled until the murder of Irene at another <gasps> church piqued their interest. Yeah. 16 kilometers away. Oh, sorry, miles. 12 kilometers away. Or 12 miles away. Maybe I was right in kilometers. Miles. <laughs> so maybe, yeah. Who knows? I didn't, I didn't do the math. No, me, I wasn't either. I just misremembered. Um, not only did the two cases coincide at a Catholic church, but a priest with dark hair and horn rim glasses came forward to claim the slide viewer they'd found in the canal where Irene's body was dumped. The glasses. Yeah. I want him to look at his hand now. Yeah. The investigators now started to think that the two cases might be linked. Whispers around McAllen and Edinburgh among townsfolk were also pinning both crimes on a priest, but everyone involved in both the Rumorville around town, or sorry, the Rumor Mill around Mm -hmm. town, and within the police department couldn't bring themselves to imagine that a man of God could possibly be the culprit. Mm -hmm. A friend of Irene's who attended Mass after her funeral said, 
quote, the feeling was that if you wanted to remain Catholic, you better not discuss it, end quote. Mm. In fact, at that very mass, the parishioners were sternly warned to not, quote, bear witness against any member of the clergy. She went on to add that, quote, the priest at Our Lady of Sorrows said he knew that rumors were going around about a priest being involved in Irene's murder. He told us, it is impossible that a priest would commit a crime like this. Don't speak of it. Don't even let yourselves think it. That's so bullying. Well, yeah. It's horrible. Totally. Yeah, because, yeah. Totally. It's like, no, 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 don't even talk about it. Don't yeah. even think about it. If you want to maintain, like, an authoritarian hold on a community, you also don't want them to talk bad against it's the a, hierarchy, it's right? Very good point. Very good point. That's exactly what they are, right? Like yeah. Instead of the... I mean, I'm not a Christian, so my interpretation of it is suspect, <laughs> at least. <laughs> but, you know, definitely the, the Protestant... Uh, it's a way own, to maintain control, right? Like to Yeah, but like, yeah, from the beginning, you, if you just look at the basis, the Protestants are people who believe that you're allowed to read the Bible and decide what the word is saying mm -hmm. whereas the catholics rule is no mm -hmm. you don't interpret it the priest interprets we interpret it. it yeah you just shut up and accept it yeah which is very what was the word you used authoritarian, authoritarian. <laughs> <laughs> ouch <laughs> ouch okay so However, this did not stop the detectives on the case from doing their jobs, and they began looking more closely at the town's newest member of the clergy. Ten points, detectives. <laughs> bueno, you'll, bueno. I mean, you say that now. At least just so wait. Far. At least so far. <laughs> so, John Fight was a 27-year-old priest who had just finished up his seminary training in San Antonio, Texas. They knew very little about him, but his name just kept popping up in their investigation. He'd come to the Rio Grande, Rio, Rio, Rio Grande Valley <laughs> for a year of pastoral training where he would perform communions and baptisms. He was described as polite, intelligent, and could easily perform his sermons in fluent Spanish. Oh. But to the parishioners at the Sacred Heart, he came across as a bit standoffish and as someone who kept to himself. Mm -hmm. This was in stark contrast to the assistant pastor, Father Joseph O'Brien, who was warm and amiable and seemed to rather enjoy his duties at the church. Fight seemed quite ambivalent about his calling as a priest. When he was asked why he joined the priesthood, he said, quote, I just wanted to give it a try. <laughs> Sounds like an American. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> <laughs> None taken. <laughs> I'm all for trying things. I'm not sure if I'm up for trying a Catholic church, though. But Let's give it a try. Hey, it's an adventurous soul. <laughs> In the days following the disappearance of Irene, he, along with his fellow priests and parishioners present that Saturday night, were questioned by police. He was assisting the clergy that night, listening to confessions and taking part in the Midnight Mass. He admitted to speaking privately with Irene in the rectory, claiming that she had wanted to take confession in a more private setting. The other priests viewed this conduct as rather inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Several churchgoers recalled that Fight's confessional line was very slow going and that he seemed to be absent for long periods of time. 
His fellow priests gathered after the midnight mass to have coffee and noticed that Fight had scratches on his hands and arms. Oh. Mm-hmm. In early May, they summoned John Fight for questioning. When asked about his slide viewer, or asked him about how his slide viewer ended up in the canal, he couldn't give them an explanation. So they questioned him about the night that Evrain went missing. He gave them a rather meticulous account of his actions that night. He confirmed that he'd gone to hear Irene's confession in private, but that he last saw her around 7.15 when they both left the rectory. He then said that he spent the rest of the evening hearing confessions and returning to the rectory twice to smoke cigarettes. Nice. Yeah, priest back in the day. There's a few photos of him with cigarettes in his hand. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He went on to say that his glasses broke at some point because he had a habit of fiddling with them while listening to confessions. So he left again to retrieve his other pair back at his residence, which was at the pastoral house of the Oblate Fathers, five miles away in San Juan. As for the scratches on his arms and hands, he explained this away by saying that when he arrived... He found himself locked out, so he had to climb up the wall to a second-story balcony by propping a wooden barricade against the building. Oh, my gosh. He said it was then that he scratched up his arms and hands and received an even deeper cut on his index and middle finger from the bricks on the building. He's not used bricks very much in his life, has he? They usually scratch <laughs> He's climbing you. climbing a wall. They don't freaking cut <laughs> you. They scratch wall. you. He told police that he'd been troubled after finding out that the woman he'd taken to the rectory for confession had gone missing. Easter Sunday was a busy day for him. He'd performed two masses that morning and another in the late afternoon, followed by baptisms. When he returned to the rectory to retrieve his suit and collar, he ran into a priest who asked him if he would speak with Irene's parents, Josephina and Nicholas. They were desperate for information about their missing daughter, and had heard that he was the priest who had heard her confession the night before. Oh my gosh! I mean, I I already I'm I, he's guilty, and <laughs> like to think of that situation and, and like it, it's so cruel, right? Their parents are talking to the killer mm. of their daughter, and mm-hmm. he's just pretending to be a nice little boy. I mean, yeah, oh, it's so fucked up, mm-hmm. so fucked up. It gets worse. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I don't have more Chapellas to hold on yeah, to. Yeah, hold on. I hold need, on to that I need three Chapellas right now. <laughs> Jesus. So he told police, quote, they wanted to know if I had perhaps said anything which might have upset or disturbed their daughter. I replied in the negative, end quote. <laughs> he claimed that he didn't return to his residence in San Juan after speaking with them. He said, quote, my talk with the girl's parents had disturbed me. Perhaps I had said something unintentionally that might have upset this girl. At any rate, it seemed that no one had seen or heard from her since she left the rectory that Saturday night, since she talked to me. I was worried and drove around aimlessly for a while. As quote. if, as if. He's trying to look for an escape. The alibi, bastards. alibi. You thought Amy should have thought of that first. <laughs> he doesn't listen to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, back in the, there was no true crime podcast back in the day. Well, nineteen sixties. Fight was given a series of polygraph tests, and initially the McAllen police said that he had passed them, 
but it later came out that the results were inconclusive. They go back and forth whether that is believable or not, right? Well, yeah, it can't be used in court because right. it's not it's not concrete evidence because yeah. it could be someone's it's basically measuring your blood pressure like your mm-hmm. blood pressure and stuff. So mm. it's uh, like you could just be nervous cuz you're talking to the cops. Um, the investigation hit many roadblocks, particularly because their main suspect was a man of the cloth in a deeply Catholic community. Mm-hmm. And Fight knew it. One U.S. Border Patrol agent, Harry Cecil, questioned Fight about the murder for 12 hours. Fight told him, quote, you'll never convict me of anything, end quote. Oh my gosh. Right, now balls, he's, right, balls. He's, he's bragging about it. Mm-hmm. What a dick. Yeah. When Irene's parents became frustrated by the lack of progress in the case, they confronted the priests at the Sacred Heart Church, where they were told by Father O'Brien that if Fight had done anything wrong, the church would punish him. And that, quote, church punishment was greater than any sentence he would receive in court. Yeah, he'd be moved to another state. Poor boy. Mm -hmm. Fucking dickheads. Oh my gosh. So, McKellen's chief of police, Clint Moosey believed fight to be guilty of the murder but he was transferred to an out-of-town precinct before completing the investigation and the lead investigator on the case simply wouldn't believe that a priest could have committed such a crime how far how 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 long after these are the months following so finding her body four or five months okay so Uh, shall we take a break here sure let's do that i mean omg omg see you guys in a minute back so you know hitting a wall in the irene garza case mm-hmm. they brought fight in again to ask him about his movements on the day that maria was attacked oh yeah good move mm-hmm. so in his sworn statement he admitted to being in the very church on the day that maria was attacked he's he's cocky now mm-hmm He claimed that he had gone there to speak with a priest at the church's rectory before entering the church to kneel at a back pew to say his rosary. When asked about the car he was driving, he said it was a 1956 blue and white Ford sedan. Oh my gosh. He insisted that he had left Edinburgh at least an hour before Maria had been attacked because he needed to return to the pastoral house in San Juan to ring the 530 bell. He had had a job to do. Supposedly. Mm -hmm. Investigators had learned from other interviews that around this time, Fight's finger had been badly cut. When asked about it, he said that on the day before going to Edinburgh, he had gotten it caught in a mimograph machine. What is that again? I had to look it up myself. So thank thank you you for asking because I thought Douglas is probably going to ask me what the hell a Mm -hmm. mimograph machine is. So it's like a, a way of doing like, uh, quick printing. It's like quick printing press. Uh, right. Sort of thing. Yeah. So it's like a, you could put like a stenciling type thing. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Machine where you have to have the rollers like shh, yeah. slide out whatever you want. Yeah. I remember, remember what it is. Yeah. My aunt used to use it that. It mimes whatever you want to graph onto something. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to make pamphlets and shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So detectives went to check on fights alibis on the day in question. Several priests interviewed told them that Father Fight had not returned on time to ring the 530 bell. 
and that his finger yes. wasn't injured until after the night of Maria's attack. At Remember, least, she bit his fucking yeah, finger. Yeah, at least these priests are not lying out their elbows like they would normally. Yeah. Good to hear. In addition, they corroborated Maria's description of the clothing he was wearing, as did another witness who had seen the attacker fleeing the church. Oh, the pieces are getting All together. All falling into place, yes. So good, so good. When detectives brought Maria and the eyewitness in to see if they could pick the assailant out of a police lineup, they both chose John Fight out of a lineup. So it was the girl who was attacked and who else? And then the witness that saw the, the attacker fleeing the church. Fleeing. Oh, excellent. Yeah. I think so probably he's... saw Maria run out screaming and like, what? What's going on there? And mm-hmm. then saw him run out mm. and get into his blue and white sedan and I drive mean... away. <laughs> I can picture one of these crazy things with like the the fins at the back yeah. and the pointy red lights. Those are cool cars, though. They they look those cars gorgeous. from the sixties. I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On August tenth, nineteen sixty one, the Hidalgo Hidalgo County Hidalgo. Grand Jury indicted John Fight for the assault with the intent to rape Maria Guerra. Good. But when they went to the headquarters of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, there's lots of these names in here, all right? Sure, I mean. To inquire as to his whereabouts, you know, to arrest him, Mm -hmm. they were told by church officials that he had left the state and they declared him a fugitive. He did, however, surrender himself weeks later, stating that he'd been hospitalized after having suffered from a nervous breakdown brought on by all the police interrogations. Poor baby. Well, he's going to try out jail soon. <laughs> See how that feels as opposed to the Catholic Church. Oh, hold on to your chapella, Douglas. Hold on to your chapella. Oh, oh. <laughs> I, I can see the ending of this episode also being, no, he is a bishop in the Vatican. <laughs> yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, okay. I'm going to readjust my expectations. <laughs> so, a fight went on trial on September 12th, 1961. This trial was declared a mistrial because the jury was deadlocked nine to three in favor of conviction. So, sidebar. Okay. Yeah. Why the fuck do we not just kill these last three people? (laughs) (laughs) Nope. You have to have a unanimous. They have to have a unanimous. Yep. That's ridiculous. So, this is my sidebar. So, comparison to the American judicial system and that of Spain. Okay. I learned from my legal consultant Mm. and friend of the pod, Gisela. Mm -hmm. Hi, Gisela. If you're listening. Um, that the juries in Spain are made up of nine members and two alternates. In order to convict on a guilty verdict, you need a seven to nine vote. So a majority. Seven out of nine. Yep. Not two nine then. But on a non-guilty verdict, which I guess they make a difference between, the verdict, it it has to be five to nine. So if you Five out of nine. Yes. Five to nine seems like it's five votes against nine votes. Five voting in one way, nine out of the nine. Yeah, yeah. Out of nine. You okay. say it in a weird way. But... Mm, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the American system, you're declared guilty or not guilty, right? And in the verdict. Okay. And it must be unanimous among all okay. jury members. Okay. And wow. if not, it's a mistrial. So they have to try it again. Oh my gosh. You have to do the whole trial all over again. It just smells like another waste of money. The U.S. is great at that, eh? <laughs> they're good at spending money, yeah. Yeah, that's what they're doing. <laughs> okay, that didn't work. Let's try it Let's again. Let's do it again. 
<clears throat> All right. Pun intended. So, <laughs> in the case of our priest, he received a mistrial as the verdict wasn't unanimous. Unanimous, excuse me. And rather than face another criminal trial, on March 28, 1962, while in his black priest habit, Father Fight pled no contest. So what is a no contest plea, you might ask? Yeah, I mean, I've never heard of that. I'll tell you. Well, I mean, I'll read you the official definition uh-huh, uh-huh. from Wikipedia. Let's go. So a no contest plea is also known as a no lo contendere plea, mm-hmm. which is one it's one in which the defendant does not admit guilt but accepts punishment as if they had pled guilty. This type of plea is often Damn. used when the defendant wants to avoid a lengthy trial or a public admission of guilt. So basically it's like you have enough evidence to convict me. Sure. And I am not able to fight it. Okay, so his plea of no contest was to the reduced charges of aggravated assault and his defense stressed that in taking this deal it was by no means an admission of guilt. So it was only related to Maria Guerra. Yeah. That's terrible. Yeah, that's what the trial was about was this attack on Maria Guerra. So what like that's nothing like what like a few months in jail. So no. What do you think happened to him? Community service. <laughs> no, not even that. Not even? Not even that. What? He walked away with a $500 fine. So 500 what do you think it is today? I want you to guess. Uh, a laptop. <laughs> <laughs> but in dollars. Give me in dollars. <laughs> a good laptop. Let's say 3000 5000 It's a better laptop, but it's still a laptop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fucking bastard. I know. Sorry. When the court asked if he had anything to say, he said, quote, nothing. And he even claimed that he hadn't understood what he had pleaded to. So I'm assuming that the church paid his fine. (gasps) But, you know, I could. On top of that. No, no, no. I don't know. Yeah, no, you're probably right. No, you're probably right. Okay. You're probably right. Because I couldn't find any information to find to -hmm. confirm that Mm -hmm. either way. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's a priest. So what money is he earning? He's not earning money. He doesn't have money. I'm sure you do. I don't think you earn money. You get a salary. Do they? I don't know. Do they? As far as I know, yeah. Like, how do you go get a coffee? They have a little Well, they probably give you like a stipend or I don't know. Exactly. That's a salary. Okay. Right? Sure. I guess so. Like a minimum living, what is it? like? Yeah, I guess he had to put gasoline in his his blue and white sedan. Yeah. (laughs) So maybe, yeah. Okay. I, I can just imagine this, like, white credit card that says Pope in front of it and just pays for everything. <laughs> it's got a picture of the Pope on it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you accept <laughs> when you, you go accept God? Car? Yeah, pay for it. Boom, boom, <laughs> cha-ching, cha-ching. No offense to all the believing Catholics. I oh, believe yeah. it's I mean, beautiful that's and, a given, but and goodness still. is lovely, but <clears throat> the institution is a bit fucked up. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Sorry to say. So, um, yeah, I, yeah, I'm assuming they paid for it. And because, um, you know, we know the church has a history of taking their, you know, taking care of their own to avoid any public. Tell me about you it. You know, bad publicity. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. So, this very conduct by the church will lead us into the next part of our story that I'll tell you about. Okay. Okay. So, post John Fight's conviction for the assault on Maria Guerra, Mm -hmm. the church stepped in to, quote, handle this problem with one of their priests. What do you think they did? Transferred him. Boom. (laughs) You guessed it. I got that, like, I guessed that ten minutes ago. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, <clears throat> Fight was sent to the Trappist Monastery, New Mallory Abbey, in Dubuque, Iowa, and then on to the Assumption Abbey, another Trappist Monastery, in Ava, Missouri. Oh, he didn't last long. A monk at this last abbey, by the name of Dale Tackney, was assigned to council fight about all his misdeeds in Texas, and to determine whether or not fight would be fit for the life as a monk. Fit for a life as a monk. Oh, I think they're definitely going to approve him. (laughs) (laughs) How much I believe in those institutions. After some months of counseling with Tackney, Fight found that the lifestyle of a monk was not to his liking. (laughs) So, um, in 1966, he was sent to a treatment retreat for troubled priests in Jemez Springs, New Mexico. I hope there's no population around them. (laughs) (laughs) This center was run by the servants of the paraclete. Okay. And after his, quote, treatment, he ended up joining the order as a staff member and working his way up to a supervisory role. Oh, my gosh. So in this position, he was to supervise sexually abusive priests and to determine when they were fit to be placed back into contact (sighs) with children. So one sexual predator deciding the fitness of another sexual predator. Okay, now now I have have the perfect... (laughs) Now your chapella is flying into the atmosphere. It's in in pink flames... It's becoming a supernova. <laughs> All right, so oh, yeah. one of these troubled priests that John released and deemed fit was a priest who had been caught sexually abusing children starting in the 1960s in Massachusetts. A one Father James Porter. John Fight, in his supervisory role, cleared him for placement at at least, at least four times in New Mexico parishes. And Porter was sent back to the treatment center each time because he'd been abusing boys. Mostly Hispanic boys aged 7 to 10. That is sick. Mm-hmm. Like the fact, even just the fact that the Catholic Church has a position <laughs> mm. for a guy. And that this guy came from... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, like to assess whether it's okay to put abusive priests back, back into the community. I know. I know. Is like... Yeah. I know. You know, I mentioned their race because it probably makes them more vulnerable, right? Because they're less likely yeah. to be taken seriously. Yeah. They went to police. And maybe language issues. Yeah. You know, a lot of, yeah. So, Porter, having been sent back four separate times, is then moved on to Houston, where he continues to be a predator in another parish. After being cleared over and over again to serve in various parishes around the country, this priest was finally arrested 20 years later... 20 years later, he pleaded guilty to abusing 28 children and received a sentence of 18 to 20 years in prison. He later admitted to having abused more than 100 children. <clears throat> there were two contradictory statements from Fight concerning James Porter in letters to Porter's home diocese. In one, he laments that Porter had, quote, lapsed into his former failings. <laughs> <laughs> but in another, he wrote, there's been no occurrence of the problem that plagued father For- porter in the past so he was just all over the place in his you know his analysis of whether or not he was fit right yeah the head of the servants of paraclete at the time claimed to be shocked absolutely shocked that a priest with a criminal past of sexual misconduct was put in the position to make decisions about priests concerning the very same crime so do you think they were really shocked no <laughs> 
I also don't think they no, were very shocked. They don't understand the word shocked. <laughs> They're using it incorrectly. <laughs> like, You're using the yeah, word incorrectly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, <clears throat> in the 1970s, John Fight left the priesthood for good. He married a woman he'd met in New Mexico and had three children. He held several jobs in Chicago before moving and settling in Phoenix, Arizona, where his brother was a pastor at the St. Teresa Church. Mm-hmm. He became the director of volunteers for the Society of Vincent de Paul, becoming an advocate for the poor. He once said of the homeless, quote, Many can't fend for themselves. Most are in pitiful shape. Hundreds need help and few are getting it, end quote. The director of the St. Vincent de Paul Society in Phoenix said that, quote, John went beyond what anyone would remotely imagine a man doing. He truly lived his beliefs, and his passion motivated many others to do more than they otherwise would have done, end quote. Yes. It was even reported that at one point, a colleague of his was experiencing financial difficulties and John requested that his own salary be reduced so that this money could be given to his co-worker. So. In 2002, John Fight retired, but continued to dedicate his time to helping the poor. He established the Just Faith program to assist other Catholics in putting their faith into action for social causes. Locally, he had a reputation as a faith-driven and compassionate man. At one point, the publication Arizona Republic asked him to comment on the revelations concerning the sexual abuse cover-ups, sexual abuse and cover-ups within the Catholic Church. Hmm. The outrage from the public had prompted the American bishops to change tactics and that from then on all future cases would be turned over to the civil authorities. Hmm. Do you know, you have an approximate year for this? This is 2002 when he retired, so it must have been around that time. Fight stated about this. Four years later already. Mm -hmm. He stated, it has to be that way. It means that if someone's doing something wrong, they're above the law simply because they're an ordained minister. Well, this would come back to haunt him. Okay. So shall we take a break? Uh, Yes, I'm looking forward to the haunting. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're back. All right, so in April of 2002, a call came into the homicide division of the San Antonio Police Department. The man on the line was one Dale Tackney. Mm-hmm. He'd been struggling for some years at this point with a question of conscience. Oh my gosh. And he could no longer keep it to himself. Tackney was a former priest living <gasps> in Oklahoma City. He told Detective George Sadler that he had information about a murder that had occurred in the 1960s. He explained that he had left the priesthood a long time ago, but that when he was living at a Trappist monastery in Ava, Missouri in 1963, he was tasked with counseling another priest by the name of John Fight, who'd come from San Antonio. He said... Quote, he told me that he had attacked a young woman in a parish on Easter weekend and murdered her. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. Detective Sadler was skeptical of what he was hearing, but the caller was insistent. Hmm. So Sadler requested that Tackney put everything that he remembered in writing, hmm. took his number, and told him that they would get back to him when they had something. Hmm. He read and reread the letter from the ex-priest, but couldn't make sense of it. 
The priest took her to the parish house to hear her confession. After hearing her confession, he salted her, bound her, gagged her. And like a good detective, he scrutinized hundreds of old newspaper articles from the 60s Mm. and the very few police records that had survived from that time. But he could find no murders that matched the details from the letter. And as he had a backlog of over 100, no, 1,400 Mm. unsolved murders to investigate in San Antonio, he soon forgot about the phone call and the letter and moved on to other cases. Yeah. AI, where is AI when we need it? (laughs) So that was in uh, April, right? April 2002. 2002. This poor family is freaking languishing for 40 years. Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry, just had to pop that into them. In early November of that year, (sighs) Texas Ranger Rocky Milliken, love that name, right, Rocky? That's a good one. He stopped by Sadler's office to collect some evidence for a case he was working on. They discussed the case he was working on, and while chatting with Milliken, or Rocky, Mm -hmm. he mentioned that the Texas Rangers' newly established cold case unit had been very busy as of late. Oh, He commented to Sadler how incredible he found it to be that some of the cases were so old. Hmm. He said, quote, They've got one out of the valley that dates all the way back to 1960. A woman was murdered on Easter weekend, and the main suspect was a priest. Ten points. He got the necessary information. Well done. Sadler was shocked by what he was hearing and Hmm. pressed Rocky Hmm. for more details. Hmm. So Milliken, or Rocky, relayed all of what he knew about the case and told the detective that he should confer with the detective in charge of the case, Rudy uh, Jaramillo. Mm-hmm. is how they pronounce it here, but perhaps it's Jaramillo mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> in America. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Jaramillo. 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 So, Jaramillo? Good, I don't know good, how good I should surname. pronounce it. Jaramillo. Great surname. I'm loving it. It's not Basque, but it's great fun. <laughs> So he was one of eight detectives on the Texas Ranger cold case unit. And in the spring of that year, when Sadler had received the call from Dale Tackney, he had just started reinvestigating Irene Garza's murder Mm. at the request of the McAllen Police Department. Mm. Jaramillo, or Jaramillo, and Sadler happened to live in the very same small town outside of San Antonio, Texas. Oh, wow. The two had never met but they met up that evening, compared notes, and realized their two investigations were one and the same. Oh, wow. So. <clears throat> That's so many coincidences. Right? Like, this is the only reason. Just take 40 fucking years. Chances. Just but, chances. you know, hey, better late than never, I suppose. Right. It seems um, Jaramillo, or Jaramillo, had also hit a wall on the case. DNA testing of Irene's clothes turned up nothing new, Mm. and nearly all of the original detectives and people with any knowledge of the case had since died, Mm. giving him no one to re-interview. He did find that the 1960 case was meticulously documented, but when it came to bringing the case to be tried, they couldn't answer the most basic questions that a jury would have. Mm. For example, where was she murdered? What was she killed with? Mm. When was her body dumped? Mm. But that is until Dale Tackney came forward. Jaramillo had reopened the case in the spring of 2002 and was pleased to find that Father O'Brien, who was at the church working with Fight on the night Irene went missing, was still alive and Mm. living in a retirement facility. Mm. O'Brien had given an interview on TV in 2000 
where he claimed that he knew nothing about Irene's murder. But when Jaramillo went to interview him again in 2002, he admitted that in the summer of 1960, he confronted Fight about his involvement in Irene's death, mm. having suspected him from the start. Fight confessed to him that he had murdered her. Mm. So now we have two priests with confessions from Fight. Mm. Now he's an enabler because he's fucking yep. covered it up for so many freaking mm-hmm. years. <sighs> they contacted Fight. They informed him that the case had been reopened and asked him if there was anything else he'd like to share with law enforcement. Anything that someone who was there the night she disappeared would want the police to know. He simply replied, quote, that man doesn't exist anymore. Oh, how convenient. Mm-hmm. So, the DA of Hidalgo County, Rene Guerra, would be the one who would decide if the case could be tried in court. So the DA is the district attorney, mm-hmm. and they are the ones that decide which cases go to court. They're going to be heard, yeah. Yeah. So he had held his position as DA from the 1980s to 2014. So that was how long his stretch was as the DA. 1980s to 2014. So this is in 2002, right? So when investigators brought the case to him, he declined to convene a grand jury. The grand jury would decide if there was enough evidence to indict John Fight. His reasoning was that he didn't find the new witnesses, Dale Tackney, credible, the new witness, Dale Tackney, credible, and that there was a lack of physical evidence connecting him to the crime. He believed the case was unsolvable and was quoted as saying at the time, quote, her killer got away. Where are you going to find the evidence? I reviewed the file some years back. There was nothing there. Can it be solved? Well, I guess if you believe pigs can fly, anything is possible. Why would anyone be haunted by her death? She died. Her killer got away. What the fuck? Tell her freaking family that. Right. Why would they be haunted? That is so callous. I know. I mean... Yeah, he sounds like a real dick. Totally, <clears throat> totally. Linda de la Vigna, a cousin of Irene Garza, pushed Guerra to indict and prosecute fight for her cousin's death. Good. She reported that he put his finger in her face and screamed at her, You'll never get an indictment. You'll get one when pigs fly. Let's start... To the family. Let's start taking some... I mean, yeah, So, to the family in her face and yelling at her with his finger in her face. I mean, rude, callous. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. So, he would not budge, despite the fact that there were new witnesses and some physical evidence. So, you remember the slide viewer they found Mm -hmm. in the canal. Mm Mm-hmm. That belonged to fight. Mm. And, of course, a ton of circumstantial evidence. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, in March of 2004, he finally relented. Irene's family and friends had held a vigil in front of the courthouse. The media and the public in general placed enormous pressure on the DA. And law enforcement insisted they had enough to convict I'm fight. I'm so disappointed it took them to organize vigils and freaking protests to get justice. That is... Yeah, that's what it's it takes. It's not even to get it's what justice. It it's to get justice to hear Just the freaking case. Yeah. It's not even... Yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, hey, we don't live in a fair world, as they say. <laughs> yeah. So, Guerra relented and asked two of his prosecutors to present the evidence to a grand jury over the course of 15 weeks. Mm. So, grand juries. I'm going to tell you about that Go for from it. Wikipedia. Grand juries are composed of 16 to 23 members, 
and that 12 members must concur in an indictment. So 12 out of those 16 to 23. Okay, so that's a grand jury. And the this previous is a one jury. is a so normal jury. So this is just jury. to say they have enough to take it to court. Mm-hmm. A jury is the one that would sit on the case at trial. Oh, really? And they're so like... So the grand jury is like, they call them together mm-hmm. to go, here's the evidence we have. Okay. Is this enough to take it to court? So that's how many out of 16? So it's 16 to 23 is the numbers. Oh, okay. And 12 of those members must concur for yeah. an indictment. Okay. So then after it has to be unanimous, but not the grand jury beforehand. Yeah, no. Okay. Under federal law, a grand jury must be randomly selected from a fair cross-section of the community in the location where the grand jury will convene. Mm. The names of potential jurors are drawn from random at random mm-hmm. from a list of voters. The, people's, the people whose names were chosen, unless exempt or excused, must appear before the court. The judge will then direct the selection of the 23 qualified people who will become the final jury. Mm-hmm. So that's how they create Convenient. these grand juries. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So, many following the case found the proceedings of the grand jury to be odd. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Law enforcement wasn't called to testify until the 11th week. So there were 15 weeks getting together. Mm-hmm. And not until the 11th week did law enforcement come to come forward to like show what evidence they had. Mm-hmm against fight like yeah. the slide viewer where's the rest the, of the evidence coming the, from the, yeah. the car tracks or the yeah. you know all the other evidence they found that's ridiculous already or all the circumstantial shit about he was the one that was last seen with her etc uh-huh. <clears throat> and then the main the two main witnesses who had confessions from fight dale tackney and father o'brien weren't even called to testify at all the only witness from sacred heart church from the night she disappeared, that was called to testify, was Elena Sanchez. She was the church's secretary, and she was a witness for the defense in John Fight's criminal sexual assault case. So she was there on behalf of his defense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was the only um, Person witness they called. they called to talk about. So who decided this would be the public prosecutor, right? The district attorney. Yeah. Oh, it was the district attorney who decided that. Yeah, I he's the one that would like... send his prosecutors... To present evidence to the grand jury. So he's in charge of what they're presenting, right? What the prosecution side would present against fight. I thought he would just decide if it would be heard or not. That's just too much power for this guy. Mm-hmm. And of course, the, uh... strangest of all is that John Fight himself was never even subpoenaed to appear in front of the grand jury. So he was never indicted and the police closed the case again. So it's a very good expression for this in the best country is me cago en la hostia. <laughs> Explain to our listeners what <laughs> la hostia is. Do we really need to go there? <laughs> <laughs> but what is la hostia? I love that that is a curse word. It is great. Because it is very linked to the Catholic Church, right? Totally. So what is so, la hostia? And this is very a Basque, it's very Basque swear word it's not it's like when you say it people think you're from Bilbao or, oh really yeah yeah it's not like oh I didn't know it wasn't widespread no no <laughs> no so like like in Quebec where there's a lot of uh, swearing related to the Catholic Church mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this one literally means I'm shitting on the holy host the host yeah which is the the, little the body of Christ yes yeah. when you take uh, com- communion yeah so saying what the f you say i'm shitting on the host yeah <laughs> which is uh 
Yeah, I mean, it's a crazy image when you think about it, which mm -hmm. you're not supposed to do. You're no. just supposed to say it and express, you know, disgust and horror. Yeah. And, and ostia can be used, too, to be like an exclamation of like yeah. shock or like... Like, fuck! Ostia! <laughs> ostia. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or like yeah. surprise or... <laughs> yeah. So you just yell, host! <laughs> yeah. And it can be either ostia or ostias. It can ostias, be... Ostias, yeah. Plural. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, when media organizations asked to see the investigative file good, that Guerra, you know, behind the grand jury, the, the evidence they presented, mm -hmm. Guerra threatened to prosecute McAllen Police Chief Victor Rodriguez if he revealed the material, stating, what? quote, there are some things that have to be kept secret that just cannot be put into print. End quote. But Sorry. that material did find its way into the hands of the media. Ten points, and American media, <laughs> for once. <laughs> and reporters contacted Tacney and O'Brien, forcing Guerra nice. to respond. He said that he felt both men were unreliable witnesses about the two priests, despite not having interviewed them himself. Yeah. That's, he uh... dismissed O'Brien on the grounds that he had a delicate mental and physical state and as for Tacney, he believed that he might have, quote, an axe to grind with the church and was just seeking a book deal. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Is that is that what happened? He wanted a book deal. <laughs> he went on to say that the Texas Rangers had basically fed these two men all the information they needed to make out their statements. Wow. This, this guy. Mm -hmm. When asked why fight wasn't called before the grand jury, Guerra replied, if I make him a target, he's got the right to... Tell me to go to hell. So it seemed that many of the participants in the case were hung up on what it would mean for them to go after a man who represented their faith. Much like when Irene was killed back in 1960, they just couldn't bring themselves to get between their faith and the demands of justice. Guerra said at the time, quote, If John Fight did this, I hope he will atone for his sin. And as to Irene Garza, he said, quote, I think if she died leaving the church after confession that she died in a state of grace and she should be in heaven as I believe in God. Yeah, this is <clears throat> Well, painful. even Garza's sister, Josie Cavazos, mm -hmm. so she must have married, married since then, him. in 2002, she did not want the murder case to be investigated or the killer apprehended. She said, quote, I feel like that's between the person who murdered my sister and God. If he's asked God for forgiveness, he's going to heaven just as much as anyone else. So what's the point in all this? The Lord takes care of all things. She added that, quote, it was my parents' wish as well as mine that the person who did this ask for forgiveness because we don't want him to be damned for, for eternity. We want him to go to heaven. That's her sister. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful sentiment, I have to say. And it's a very... Yeah, and it's like having to... I, for it's victims, a very Christian sentiment. For like victims, like the family members of victims too, it's like such a horrendous thing to go through yeah because 40 years with nothing yeah you gotta deal with it somehow and then you're reliving it all and that's a again. fair yeah it's a very fair attitude to have yeah just 40 like, years later make your peace with it i guess but other members of the garza family like the cousin that went after the da right good you know i like um, her they reported that they had been chastised for seeking justice for irene and had been threatened quote if we were truly christian we should forgive and forget Victims of clergy sexual abuse were regularly told the same thing, mm. that they should forgive and forget, as it says in the Bible. 
So it's a perverse system. Another standstill, right? Yeah. Again, it goes cold. Oh my gosh. Right. Okay. Ready? <laughs> sure. I'm holding. So all in my... 2014. 14. Jesus. <laughs> Ten years later, a new DA, Ricardo Rodriguez, was elected in Hidalgo County. And during his campaign, he promised to look into the case of Irene's death. Oh, because now it's a media thing and everybody mm-hmm. wants it. Nice. So... so he used it to his advantage to win the campaign and he is now the new DA. But also, I, I mean, you know, from a let's take five or ten steps back, it's, you know, just highlighting how important the media is a part of democracy. If totally. we don't have the media, we don't really have oh, democracy. Totally. It just totally. falls and breaks. And Agreed, agreed. So journalists, we love you. We love you. You very, do great very much. work. Shout out to all my journalist friends mm-hmm. and not friends. <laughs> <laughs> As in, let's include everybody. <laughs> yeah. So look into the case he did. And in February of 2016, oh my gosh. in Scottsdale, Arizona, John Fight, aged 83, was finally arrested and charged with the murder of Irene Garza. Okay? Yeah. 2016. So, the prosecutor in the case, Mike Garza, no relation to Irene. 56 years later. Ish. Mm-hmm. He said at the time, quote, There may be people who don't understand why an old man is being prosecuted. But <laughs> make no mistake, this man is evil. He was a predator. He's a wolf in priest's clothing, looking to attack. By this time, Father O'Brien had since died in 2005. Mm -hmm. So the prosecution's main witness for the details of the crime was Dale Tackney. Mm. After much stalling by the defense for various reasons, like requests for change of venue, bond hearings to release fight for health reasons, Mm -hmm. scheduling conflicts, blah, 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 Mm. Fight finally went on trial November 28th of 2017. My gosh. Obviously, our biggest witness was Tell Dacne, or Dale Tacney, excuse me, Dale Tacney. Mm. He was now 85 years old. Wow. He testified in court that in 1963, when he was a monk at the Trappist Monastery in Ava, Missouri, the abbot presented him with an unusual assignment. He was told that, quote, there's a priest who murdered a woman what? who's in the guest house. He wants to become a monk. We're instructed to take him in. During his counseling of fight, Tackney said that fight told him that he was bothered and made anxious by, quote, women with high heels who walked on hard floors, end quote. What he also testified to fight's confession of the murder of Irene, but without naming her. So fight never said her name. But he did so without showing any signs of remorse. (laughs) Fight said that he, quote, had a sexual compulsion to attack women from behind, especially when he knelt behind them in church, end quote. Tacney asked him why he wasn't in prison for this crime. And Fight replied that, quote, the church is behind me. (laughs) Because the higher ups didn't want the faithful to be scandalized by learning that a priest had murdered one of their flock. He then went on to detail what had happened to Irene. Fight told Tacney that he convinced Irene to give her confession in the rectory, and after hearing it, he subdued her, took part of her clothes off from the waist up, and fondled her breasts. 
He then took her to the rectory basement, tied her up, and returned to the church to hear confessions. What the heck? He returned to the rectory basement, retrieving her, and then moved her to his living quarters. So this is probably when he went mm. back to He's, his house. Yeah, he said he was going to get his glasses. To get his glasses. Mm, bastards. The next day, Easter Sunday, he put her in the bathtub of his bathroom and placed a bag over her head. I think it was a plastic bag. As he left, he heard her saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. When he returned um, between the Easter services, because there was like two in the morning, one in the evening, she was dead. He put her in the car, and this is a quote from Dale, what he said to her, him. Patting her on the breast, telling her everything will be okay. <laughs> then disgusting. he presumably dumped her body in the canal. Disgusting. Yeah. So, Tackney felt that women were safe as long as he was in the monastery. Mm. But when Fight decided that the life of a monk didn't suit him, his job at this point was to assist John in dealing with his impulses. To test this, he sent Fight on unsupervised visits to churches in Chicago and Missouri, telling him to kneel behind women to see if he felt the urge. Fortunately, oh my gosh. I think our producer <laughs> know, is going to explode. That's fucking ridiculous. I know. Fortunately for these women, Fight no longer had these impulses. Oh or so he said. Oh my gosh. At least that's what he told Techni. And that was the end of the matter. So the Trappist could not keep fight against his will. So the one he said he didn't want to be a monk. Mm -hmm. Right? So the Oblates sent fight to Chemiz Springs, to that treatment center, where he was to receive further treatment, and then went on to pursue his career as a supervisor at the center. Of, of where people. he released yeah. pedophiles yeah. into the world. Great system. <laughs> hey, Catholic Church... So, should we take another break here? Quick little break. So, we're back. Mm-hmm. That we're was back. Dale's testimony, right? Yes. Another notable testimony in the trial came from a childhood friend of Garza's, mm. Anna Maria Hollingsworth. Mm who testified about a time during Holy Week in 1960 when Garza spoke to her about the new priest at the church, mm. John Fight. Mm. She said to her, It's not the same going to confession anymore because I don't get to stay in the confessional. He comes to pull me out and says, Oh, this place isn't good enough for you. Let's go to the rectory uh, where you'll be more comfortable. How icky already. Mm -hmm. Sorry to say. And then they would walk off and go to the rectory, Hollingsworth said. Another witness stated that she, too, had had a creepy encounter with Fight in 1960. She was walking down the street when Fight pulled up in his car and asked her if he could take pictures of her dressed in black in the cemetery. She luckily declined. And oh if you see the gosh. photos of these women, they all have a look like he had a type. Uh -huh. They all okay. look very similar. So Maria, the one that was attacked in the mm -hmm. church, uh, Irene, and then this woman. Okay. So he had a type. Most damning of all, no mm. pun intended, oh. was the evidence presented at his trial concerning the Catholic Church's involvement in covering up and derailing law enforcement efforts yeah. in solving Irene's murder. Yeah. 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 Thomas Doyle, a Catholic priest and expert on sexual abuse and church law, testified. Mm. He read a letter in court 
recovered via subpoena from the Archdiocese of San Antonio, dated August 1, 1960. The letter sent between clergy officials Joseph Palicki, these names, Palicki, mm-hmm. a pastor at the church at a church outside Austin, wrote to Lawrence Seidel, the head of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, the order to which fight belonged. Mm-hmm. In it, he expressed concern concerns that if a priest was charged in Garza's death, Kennedy's presidential campaign and the re-election chances of the local Catholic sheriff would be at stake. Yeah. What year was that? 1960. It was 60. Oh. So he was running for president at the yeah, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's sad. And as a Catholic, Kennedy... Yeah, yeah. He was the first. ...was like, yeah, was like a Catholic. Like, yeah. Was he the first? Yeah. But first. Biden's the second then? Yes. Okay, okay, okay. In addition, he insisted that Seidel hire a private investigator to find, quote, loopholes in Fight's case. This letter provided some clues as to why, for decades, Fight's case went cold. Yeah. And so many others, because if that's their modus operandi. Mm -hmm. Thomas Doyle testified, quote, In my experience in the thousands of documents I've studied, it's the first time I've seen an organized plan of obfuscation, collusion, and cover-up played out step-by-step in coordination with the civilian law law enforcement. Mm. So, shall I read the letter? Okay, Okay. I'll I'll interrupt if I have to. (laughs) (laughs) All right, dated August 1st, 1960. Father Seidel, last week I had the opportunity of speaking with the sheriff about the case. His observations are not only keen and based on much experience in such matters, but seem to be the course we should follow. I gave this same set of observations to Bishop Reichter, and he too is impressed with the saneness and practicality of the sheriff's conclusions. After outlining to the sheriff the many facts I had received from Father Nash, the sheriff is of the opinion that the case is quite weak for the prosecution. Mm. He's also of the opinion that the prosecution must be made to see just how weak their case is, lest they go off half-cocked and set the wheels into motions that would bring this out in public print and give the opponents of the Catholic Church a field day. He's also of the opinion that the case would be tried here and would not be judged by on logic, but on the prejudices of the jury. There are also political implications to this that could make this a juicy scandal for the opposition to Kennedy. And last of all, there are the Masons, whom the bishop feels smell a chance to hurt the church. Just as the HEB Baptists paid for the prosecution of the priest in East Texas who was killed by the lad he befriended. Don't know that story. What to do of all of this? First, the sheriff said that we should follow the idea of not hiring a lawyer for the reasons given by Father Nash. Second, we should not put a detective on the case hired by us since that would mean he'd be snooping around, re-questioning witnesses, and stirring up things again. However, he does feel that we should hire a person, something like a first-class private detective, who would be able to sit down with Father Nash and Father Pastor of McGowan uh-huh. to get all the information on this case, then let him write it up and present it on paper in such a way as to highlight the loopholes that are so numerous in this case. Once this is done, arrange a meeting with the police chief of McGowan, the prosecuting attorney, and the sheriff, plus four priests. At this meeting, the whole situation is brought out and the prosecution will be able to see how strong the opposition is to their charges. 
they can also be brought to realize in a nice way that the church will not be take this sitting down. In a nice way. The sheriff does not want more than the number mentioned, and he thinks that this will quiet things considerably. Once this is done, then after three or four months, or even less possi- if possible, have this young man transferred to another part of the country as a normal obedience. He feels that everyone knows that the priests are always being transferred around, so this would not be strange. After some time in this new place, a year or two, then we have him sent out to a foreign mission. The reason for this first move is to get him out of the area of suspicion. If something happens, the officers of the area will always be suspicious of him. The sheriff concludes that the longer time we have, the weaker the case gets. And so he suggested all this foregoing. He has much experience in such things, and I believe this is extremely wise. He's also a Catholic, and he also stands to lose materially by such a scandal here, in such a non-Catholic area. You see? I feel that he has rendered us an invaluable service. I submit these ideas after having consulted with Bishop Reichter, who is also in agreement with this course. The bishop wishes to see you, Father, at your convenience. Let me know if I can do anything in the future to help this thing along. Your worries are ours, since we fight the same evil one who has concocted this thing in his ceaseless fight against the church, and to stop the good being done by your wonderful congregation. My prayers and mass intentions are with you, Father. I'm sure our priests will pray hard for a special intention mentioned as such to them. The way they talk. Is he actually... Father Palbuki. He's actually referring to the devil. Evil one, yeah. It's in in capital letters. Wow. (laughs) Wow. All right, so the final testimony that I will mention in this case is that um, of a former reporter who in 1962 was called to an off-the-record meeting Mm -hmm. between reporters and the district attorney's office. In that meeting, the DA said that they knew that fight had killed Irene and that they had struck a deal with the church. In exchange for his no-contest plea in the Maria Guerra sexual assault case, they would not prosecute him for Irene's murder. And that no one in the community should be worried as fight would be sent off to a monastery. That sounded weird when you said it. Yeah. Cover up. Because, like, that's why we'd never heard of this term, because it never happens. It was for for Kennedy. Was it worth it, Jilly? (laughs) 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 I mean, he's he did a lot of good things. (laughs) On December 7th, 2017, Fight was convicted of Irene Garza's murder. During the sentencing phase of the trial, Fight's lawyers requested probation, considering his lack of felony convictions after Garza's death. (laughs) The prosecution asked for a sentence of 57 years, symbolizing the period of time that had since passed since she was killed. See, I like that. That's beautiful for me. On December 8th, 2017, the jury did them one even better, oh, giving nice. fight life in prison. I mean... I mean, he was 80-something. Yeah, <laughs> so 57 years, he wasn't, I would have he wasn't pref- likely to Yeah, live. I would pre- yeah. prefer him to give... The more symbolic... 57, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was incarcerated at the W.J. Estelle Unit, 10 miles or 16 kilometers, north of Huntsville, Texas. He died of natural causes on February 12th, 2020. Mm. 
So in the 48 Hours episode on this case that I watched, mm. there's an amazing clip of Irene's cousin, Linda de la Vigna, after, mm. when she was leaving court after his conviction. Go watch, go watch. She sounds like a cool girl. <laughs> she was, you know, the one that continued to pressure yeah, the former yeah. DA, Rene Guerra, for an she's indictment on fight. She's a hero. Back in the early 2000s. And he angrily pointed in her face, yelling, you'll never get an indictment. You'll get one when pigs fly. Well... So, Pigs Linda, yeah, Linda is being interviewed by TV reporters outside the courthouse, and she says, quote, After 57 years, we have found justice for Irene, and for today, pigs are flying. And that's the end. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. All right, so, Douglas, did you want to share any um, stories about Catholic cover-ups that you may have found? Well, you kind of asked me to kind of kind of contrast it with the best country, right? Right. A little bit. Yeah. And so, scandals, Catholic Church, Spain. Okay. Right? That was my search. Okay. <laughs> the result is from, this is a very long name for an association, <clears throat> the Federación Española de Asociación de Profesionales de los... Archivos, las bibliotecas, los centros de documentación, de información, de interpretación, los museos y los yacimientos arqueológicos. Oh my God. And this place is called... <laughs> What a name. Anabad.org. Okay. So Anabad.org uh, estimates... I had never heard of this before I came here. And I think maybe you neither. Mm -hmm. The kids that were taken from their parents... And given new families by the Catholic Church when yep. they were uh, given birth in, in Catholic uh, hospitals and things like that. Three hundred thousand babies Jesus. over, I'm not sure how many years, maybe 20. Yeah. And then the second uh, story it was very cute. It was like, uh, I don't like to give a lot of credit to El País, but, you know, it's a reasonable... <laughs> source of information and it was very cute kind of how they put it they were like oh you know it was just a few i'm sorry i don't have a date here it, the, the thing is from 2023 okay but they were saying like oh initially we wanted to know how many cases of abuse like sexual abuse right, there right, were right. in a church And then they were like, so we contacted the Catholic Church. To find out what they, the numbers they had. <laughs> yep. They admitted. They were like zero. Zero. They, no, well, they, they admitted to four. Four. Yep. <laughs> and then they say, we searched the internet, or, you know, they didn't quite say that. We're like, on, on a we first. We Googled it. <laughs> on a first initial search, we found 34 cases. Oh, God. Right. And then they have a list going, and right now there are 1,027 accused, oh, yeah. accused, yeah, with 2,000, well, basically 2,200. When did they start taking these stats? This is what I want to know. Anybody who's alive, Julie. Anybody who's alive, basically. I mean, no, not... Like, starting from when to when have they come up with, like, 2,000 cases? 2,000 victims right. from 1,027 uh, accused people. And I th it just goes, it just, any case they can find. Any, okay, any uh, case. As, as Documented a, case. In Spain. That's what okay. their, you know, uh -huh. outlook was. So I'm going to say they're very powerful. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say uh, they fucked up a lot of lives. That's mm -hmm. all I'm going to say. So, yeah, pretty powerful. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, even researching a cheeky sewed one time, I came across the story about a priest who got moved around to different schools yeah. here in oh, Vizcaya. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's already smelling bad. Yep. I hope all of our listeners enjoyed. Yeah. And, uh, um, and uh, yeah, contact us at crimes of the Basklands gmail.com mm-hmm. if you want to give us like story ideas or. Just send us an email. Yeah, little like, smiley faces. Well, or mini crime times. We would love that. And see you so next that's it. time. Yes. So we bid you agur. agur. Crimes of the Basque Lands is written and produced by Douglas D. Carvalho, Julie Garcia, and Megan Dooley. The sound and editing for each episode by Douglas D. Carvalho, and Megan Dooley. Theme song written by Douglas Chicago, Julie Garcia, and Megan Dooley. Sung by the choir with no name and produced by Tom Squires. Podcast art by Distinct Signal. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Crimes of the Basklands and contact us at crimesofthebasklands at gmail.com with story ideas worldwide which have a connection to the Basque Country or any rave reviews. If you like our podcast, please subscribe, like, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, agur!